this special bonus episode of the Glow Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this bonus episode, I'm joined once again by dermatologist Dr. Cara McDonald, who is here to answer all of your skincare questions about sun damage, skin cancers, and how to protect your skin from harmful and aging UV rays. The SPF episode that I recorded with Dr. Cara late last year remains one of our most downloaded episodes of all time. But as we inch closer to summer, I realised that there were still quite a few sunscreen myths that needed busting. So I took to Instagram to ask you exactly what you wanted to know about sun protection. And I've taken your questions to the expert. For complete transparency from the outset, this episode is sponsored by La Roche-Posay Australia. However, all of Dr. McDonald's views are her own, and as per all of our Ask an Expert interviews, you will hear absolutely no specific product recommendations throughout this conversation. Those of you who do follow me on Instagram will be very aware that I am a long-term user and lover of La Roche-Posay products and a daily wearer of their Anthelios SPF 50 plus invisible fluid. So partnering with them again to cover a subject that I am so passionate about couldn't have been a more natural fit. In this conversation, Dr. Kara answers your questions on sun protection, the difference between chemical and physical sunscreens, whether or not you really need sun protection year round, if makeup with SPF actually cuts it, how often you should be reapplying your sunscreen and why everyone needs a skin check. Quite a few questions popped up that we did cover on our last SPF episode, but I do think there are a few points that it's definitely worth covering again. Before we actually do talk sunscreen specifically, though, I would love to start on the sun itself and why we do actually need to be wearing SPF every day. So to start, what are UVA and UVB rays and what are they actually doing to our skin? So um, UV light is the non-visible part of the spectrum from the sun and there's actually UVA, B and C and UVC um, largely doesn't hit the Earth's surface, so we don't worry about that, but that's probably the most damaging to DNA. And it's what's used in UV cleaning and stuff, which we've heard a lot about lately, uh, but it's not great to apply anywhere near the skin. So just stay away from any UV cleaning rays, which I have seen around. UVA um, is the longer wavelength, and it's from 315 nanometers up to 400. And being a bit longer, it penetrates a little bit deeper into the skin. So it mostly goes past the epidermis down into the dermis. And it really affects our immune function in the skin, our collagen production, but also causes some DNA damage of the cells. And then UVB is slightly shorter and it penetrates um, less deep and hits more the epidermis, which is the cellular layer of the skin. And that's why it causes sunburn. Um, and it is more responsible for the DNA damage that causes skin cancer directly, but actually it's the combination of the two that's most problematic. So do we really need protection from the sun year-round? Is UV always present? 
Yes, absolutely. It's present all year round. It is higher in the summer month, particularly UVB. So UVA is more constant. It's present um, all through winter and it penetrates through clouds and so on. So um, it's not as obvious to us. It also penetrates through glass. We don't feel it like heat and burning on the skin, uh, which we do with UVB. So UV is fairly constant all year round, even though the cumulative UV is definitely higher in summer. And, you know, we're a bit like politicians, I suppose. Sometimes there's no right answer about whether you need um, UV protection. Like there's, you know, you've got to weigh up the pros and cons of these things. Um, if you're interested in anti-aging, you need UV protection every single day of the year because we know that UVA is the most ageing and it is present throughout the year. Um, if you are worried more about your vitamin D, which we'll probably get on to later, and you're not getting excessive exposure and you're not worried about um, anti-aging effects, then there's an argument that there are certain months of the year when you can go without sunscreen. I would love to hear more about what the UV index actually is. How do we determine what the UV is on any given day? Okay, so the UV index, it's a very good question because it's actually, it was developed by the World Health Organization and it's really a vehicle for public awareness. Uh, so they've basically arbitrarily made up a sliding scale of UV, which takes into account the weather, the position on, on the earth, like how close you are to the, the equator. Um, it even takes into account, uh, you know, pollution and um, reflection as well. So it takes into account all the things that actually determine how much UV you will actually be exposed to as a person at any given time of the day in any given area um, uh, in the world. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a global solar UV index and really it just simplifies it for the public so that we know how much UV we're going to be exposed to rather than talking in sort of joules per centimetre square. They have a sliding scale of um, one to 11 or zero to 11. I've had a listener ask, is there a need to wear sunscreen when the UV is below three? Great question. Comes back to my um, uh, comment before, which is it depends really what you're worried about. And um, we, we don't see much sunburn and we don't see um, much increased risk of skin cancer if the UV index is below three. But remember, that's just one and two. Uh, however, we do still see some effects of UV light, particularly on our um, signs of ageing. And from my point of view, you know, I don't want to have to check the time of the day and where I am and whether or not the UV index has gone above three because most of the time when I'm outdoors, it's above three. So personally, I would just suggest that we wear it all the time, particularly in those uh, areas that are frequently exposed like the face. I deleted the UV index app off my phone because I just feel like checking it. If you're checking it every morning and then basing your decision off that, there's so much room for error. Like there's just exactly. no point chancing it. There's just, there's no need. I mean, it's so rarely below three, but uh, we prefer to just uh, wear it every day. So we've got UVA and we've got UVB. How do we make sure that we're choosing a sunscreen that is protecting us from both? 
Well, unfortunately, sunscreen labelling is complicated, um, but there are a couple of simple rules you can follow. And we get frequently asked this question because unfortunately there's different uh, regulations about labelling, different rules in different countries. Um, primary sunscreens are labelled differently to secondary sunscreens, which are more like cosmetics or cosmetic sunscreens. So we need to preferably, if we're looking for a good sunscreen, look for a TGA approved sunscreen in Australia. Um, and then we're looking at the two main labelling um, categories in Australia are SPF and broad spectrum. So SPF gives you the protection against the UVB rays and that's some protection factor and it's calculated as a time factor. So how much longer are you protected from UVB rays before you will burn by that particular product. And um, then broad spectrum is really the only reliable category in Australia which tells us whether or not it's got adequate UVA coverage as well. And of course we want both. Uh, it's complicated because there's not a huge degree of difference between SPF 30 and SPF 50 in the amount of UVB um, coverage. It's an exponential sort of scale. So in the low SPF, sort of under 30, um, it's a big increase for every increase in SPF, the amount of protection you get. But as you go above 30, it flattens out, if you can picture that. Whereas the UVA coverage um, is proportional to the UVB in most sunscreens, and it's more of a linear scale. So once we get to 30 SPF, uh, the UVA protection is still going up quite dramatically all the way up to 50 SPF. So when I'm looking for a sunscreen, I'm always looking for SPF 50 and broad spectrum, which means that you're pretty much guaranteed to have it um, covering UVA and UVB uh, to the best of its ability. Well, my next question was going to be um, what's the real difference between SPF 30 and 50 plus because I had so many people saying, oh, but I've heard 30 plus is not really any different, so I'm just going to wear that. But there you go, you've covered it. Yeah, so they're exactly right in that the UVB coverage is is not a lot better at 30 or 50. Mm. Um, but when you then have to take into account the anti-aging side from the UVA, but also responsible for skin cancer, then the UVA is significantly different around SPF 30 and SPF 50. So to get the best of both, we really want to look for that SPF 50 plus and 50 plus actually means it's SPF 60 or higher just to make it even more confusing. I've had a few people ask, does wearing SPF 50 plus each day block or halt our vitamin D absorption? Yeah, really good question. And we get asked this a lot. And um, the bottom line is, so we actually produce the vitamin D in our skin. So the UV um, is a sort of photochemical reaction in the skin to produce vitamin D. And vitamin D is really important for um, bone density, helping us with our bone density, with our immune system, and probably even cancer protection as well. So we definitely want to pay attention to vitamin D. It's interesting because it's UVB that does um, trigger vitamin D production. And if you're protecting the skin with sunscreen against vitamin D, you would expect there has to be some decrease in the vitamin D 
production. The studies don't show a significant difference between the amount of vitamin D um, in people who wear sunscreen strictly and those that don't. And perhaps that is uh, due to all the confounding factors uh, where we see differences in the amount of time people are outdoors. So those that wear sunscreen a lot might be outdoors more and get more incidental sun anyway. And so if people are particularly concerned about vitamin D, first of all, I suggest supplementation, which is, is easy. It is um, available in some foods, but not actually very many. Fish and eggs are the main ones. But the other thing we can do is always make sure we're protecting the areas that are frequently exposed to the sun and the areas where you're concerned about pigmentation, skin cancer or signs of aging, so the face. And the vitamin D is produced on an area basis. So, so long as you leave um, a little bit of unexposed sun, uh, skin, sorry, that can get vitamin D, get, can get sun to produce vitamin D, then uh, you're better off doing that elsewhere on the body, not the face. But it does most likely reduce it, although it's difficult to know exactly how much. I've had a lot of people write in that they're confused by just the amount of choice as far as sunscreens go. One listener has asked, what is the most important ingredient to look for in a sunscreen? Look, sunscreens are um, quite complex and there are many different um, chemicals or ingredients that actually go in to make a sunscreen. And so it's impossible to give a, a particular ingredient. But the, the one thing that you can look for is that SPF and broad spectrum labelling. And as I said, TGA approved just to ensure that it is a primary sunscreen because they are very different to cosmetic sunscreens, uh, which are not actually approved and may not have the the same protection as a primary sunscreen does. So I would say just look for SPF. I had even more people ask what ingredients should we avoid in sunscreen, but I imagine that answer is going to be quite similar to what we've just touched on. Yeah, I I am um, happy for people to use any sunscreen and um, so long as it's high protection. But for people with any skin condition or having had problems with sunscreen before, they're the ones that really do need to look for ingredients to avoid. And the number one thing would be fragrances. So a lot of people get irritation from sunscreen and more often than not, it's from the fragrances in the sunscreen, sometimes also from preservatives that are in them and then less commonly actually the sunscreen ingredients themselves. So if you do have trouble with sunscreens, then look for fragrance-free, um, low preservatives, uh, suitable for sensitive skin, uh, hypoallergenic. Those sorts of labels are, are what you should be looking for if you've had problems. But if you like the sunscreen and it's not causing you any problems and it is SPF broad spectrum, um, 50 plus, then it, it doesn't really matter. This was the question I got asked the most and can I get mm -hmm. asked this every day even when I don't do a specific SPF question call out. At what stage of our skincare routine should we be applying our SPF? Fantastic question, this one, and I get asked this a lot as well, so I'm not surprised you do. I, um, I think the way people remember it is if they think in layers. So anything active, all active ingredients are generally targeting the deeper layers of the skin 
where they'll be metabolically active. So active ingredients and generally serums go on first and they will be absorbed fastest and go deepest. The next layer is going to be our barrier support and hydration, okay? So that generally is moisturizers, things like hyaluronic acid, which will hold moisture into the skin. And on the top layer is sun protection. So sun protection is designed to stay in the top layers of the skin, in the stratum corneum, which are the non-active um, non or non-dividing cells of the skin. And they are meant to remain in that layer of the skin. We don't want them to be absorbed in deep in the skin. So you really want to think about it. It is going on top. It's like our umbrella and it should be the top layer of skincare other than makeup, which can go on top of that, obviously, for cosmetic reasons. What is the difference between physical or mineral sunscreen, a few different names there, or chemical slash synthetic sunscreen? This is another really good question because it is so confusing for people. Um, I'm going to try and really simplify this, okay? Sure. So physical sunscreen is also called inorganic sunscreen, and um, that is a titanium dioxide or zinc oxide. And these um, physical sunscreens, previously people talked about them, you know, reflecting the light off the skin. And they do do that, which chemical sunscreens don't. But they also transfer, transfer that energy into heat, as do chemical sunscreens. So the confusion comes from the name inorganic and organic. So the inorganic being those physical blockers. In chemistry, um, organic chemicals are those that contain a carbon and hydrogen bond. And really anything living is, is sort of um, organic chemicals or derived from. And inorganic chemistry is when you're thinking of minerals and um, more non-living things like metals and minerals. And... The problem is that we now use organic also to um, mean organic farming or natural products that have been produced with no chemicals. So there's a lot of confusion because an organic sunscreen is a chemical sunscreen and people get that confused with organic foods and other organic skincare, which is meant to be chemical free. So hopefully that makes sense that organic sunscreens come from the chemistry and they are the chemical sunscreens. And they are a variety of chemicals which actually absorb UV light and uh, turn it into heat. And then physical sunscreens are the more physical blockers. I like to think of them as coming from minerals and uh, they do reflect a bit, but also absorb um, the UV light to protect the skin. I know there's no real answer for this next one, but I thought I'd throw it in there anyway because so many people sent it in. A lot of listeners have asked out of, you know, the two kind of categories of sunscreens, which is better? Well, there is an answer to this actually. Oh, there you um, go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, chemical sunscreens are better and that is because it's almost impossible to get SPF 50 plus and broad, and broad spectrum just from physical blockers. So physical blockers tend to give that white cast um, look if you um, have a high enough protection to get up to above 30 plus really. So from my point of view, unless you have a real problem with chemical sunscreens, which is really rare, as I said, most people have 
problems with the additive ingredients in sunscreens, not the actual chemical sunscreen itself, then you're better off with a chemical sunscreen if you're worried about pigmentation, aging and skin cancer. A lot of people hear chemical and they think, oh my goodness, I don't want to put chemicals on my skin. Um, What if it, you know, gets absorbed in? How much gets absorbed? Well, we know that the newer sunscreens are quite large molecules and they're really designed not to be absorbed. We want them, as I said, in that top sort of non-viable layer of the skin. And there's a lot of evidence that the chemicals do not penetrate through the epidermis and they don't enter the bloodstream at all. So these chemicals really do do what they're meant to do and stay on the surface protecting us. There's also been concerns about physical blockers because they're the ones that actually become nanoparticles because we need them to be ground up very, very small in order for them to not be visible on the skin. And again, um, the evidence is that, you know, really these are not, um, they're not penetrating through the skin and being absorbed into the, the body. So they both should be very, very safe but you're likely to get much higher SPF from chemical sunscreens. If you've got very sensitive skin or known allergies to chemical sunscreens, you may tolerate a physical blocker better. And they're the re- they're really the only people I would um, try to get to use a physical blocker if they can't tolerate the chemical. I can't believe we have an answer to that question. I've just been wearing chemical all this time just because... I love it, but because it's better. There we, yeah. Now, now I have an actual reason for it. If we choose, whichever one we choose, say if it's the um, organic, inorganic, does that change the order of application at all, or is it still going on after our skincare? They should definitely both go on um, after all other skincare and before makeup. Uh, they both should be um, on that top layer of the skin and that's where they will do their job to absorb UV light and stop it penetrating um, into our skin where the alive cells uh, are prone to DNA damage. Perfect. Do the skincare products that we're applying our sunscreen over the top of, say if it's a face oil sorry, or a moisturiser, do those products have any impact on the efficacy of the SPF that we're putting over the top? Um, it's a good question because there's not a lot of um, evidence around this actually and uh, most of these SPF tests are done in lab environments where we don't take into account all these other factors. What we think is that so long as the other products have been absorbed, so depending on what it is will depend on how long that needs. If it's a really oily substance, you want to make sure that you massage it in well or give it a few minutes to absorb before you apply your sunscreen. Basically, if it's still on the surface of the skin and you then sort of mix it with your sunscreen, you are effectively diluting the sunscreen. And um, if it is an oil-based product, it's possible that it um, decreases the absorption just into the stratum corneum of the sunscreen uh, base, you know, the the cream itself, so that it doesn't um, stay on the skin as well, basically. So it's more likely to rub off or sweat off uh, than if you've got a nice clean surface to apply it to. I received so many questions asking about the best way to apply sunscreen over makeup. Now, this is something that we did cover in our last episode, but to recap, 
how often do we actually need to reapply sunscreen if we are working indoors? Okay, so my advice here is that so long as you use a really good quality sunscreen um, at least once a day in the morning under your makeup, we know that the the good sunscreens are photostable and they are long-lasting. So you do get good protection all day from an SPF 50 plus sunscreen if it was applied in an adequate quantity and you're not then sweating, rubbing it off um, or out in the sun too much. So sun itself can break down the sunscreens a little bit. So if you're indoors and you've got a face full of makeup and you're working all day, I don't think you need to reapply your sunscreen during the day. If you were going outside at lunchtime for an hour for a run in hot sun, then absolutely you would want to reapply. And in that case, you're probably going to be redoing your makeup anyway. Um, if on the other hand, you are going to be outdoors in the sun all day, then we're looking at a, a very different scenario because we know that the protection is only as good as it's stated if it's there in the quantity that it was um, needed and also if it hasn't been broken down by the sun and so if you are going to be outdoors all day then we do need to look at reapplying it which I think the next bit of your question was how do we do that was it yes yeah but I mean if we are if we're wearing a full face of makeup and then we're going outside for a run as you've just said I don't think we're most likely we'll probably put our makeup on as well. But, you know, I think the times where it's difficult is if we're going to an event that's outside and we do have makeup on, we don't want to be reapplying it uh, all day, but we are in the sun. And there are a couple of techniques we can use. Uh, First of all, try to minimise the sun that is directly on your skin because that will do two things. It reduces your exposure, but it also reduces the breakdown of the sunscreen that you have put on in the morning. And so using hats, using shade and avoiding direct sun as much as possible. Um, If you are going to be in the sun, then there are a few techniques that can work. Uh, Just basically putting a small amount of a very, very lightweight sunscreen on and just re-dabbing it over the top of your makeup, it is better than nothing. Um, And you can usually do that without smudging your makeup too much. You might then reapply a powder or something to set it again. Um, Another technique is to use a spray-on sunscreen and uh, some alcohol-type-based sprays will actually sort of evaporate off and leave your makeup fairly intact, but probably add a bit more sun protection as well. But again, we don't have any good evidence to say how much, um, how effective they are when applied a little bit over the top of makeup, but most likely it's better than nothing um, if you have to and you're outside all day. Let's put a hat on. I'm glad you've mentioned (laughs) sunscreen sprays because a lot of people have asked if the consistency of the sunscreen itself impacts its efficacy. For example, a fluid or a cream compared to something like sprays and powders that we're seeing a bit more of now. Again, it doesn't um, impact the SPF if it's applied in the, the quantity that is recommended and was used when they did the SPF measurements. And, but the problem is with a spray or a powder, it's very hard to know how much you've put on. And most um, sprays, you'll actually see they recommend sort of spraying it 
into your hand and then applying it, which gives you a better idea of how much um, product you've actually got on your skin. And I think a lot of people with, with sprays tend to end up with patchy sunscreen because they haven't really gauged how much um, they've applied. So look, I think it's easier to be sure you've got a good cover if you're using a cream or a lotion, but as I always say, you know, something is better than nothing. Just be mindful that if it's a spray, you really need to be extra diligent to uh, double spray, double coat, reapply more often to make sure you haven't left any gaps. On a sort of similar note, something else that we have covered but is definitely worth recapping, can you explain why a foundation or even like a basic moisturiser that has SPF in it is not a substitute for your sunscreen? Yeah, really good question because unfortunately this is where a lot of people fall down. They see SPF on their products and they assume that they've got good sun protection. And this is where you know, we really need to improve the uh, labelling in this country because a cosmetic product, and that is anything that's that's not primarily, so anything that's not just a sunscreen, so any moisturiser, any foundation, any makeup product that's not just a sunscreen does not have to um, be TGA tested and approved uh, to have sunscreen or SPF labelled on their product, whereas something that's a primary sunscreen, so something that really is just a sunscreen or marketed as a sunscreen, needs to have proof and be tested. So the bottom line is that, first of all, the makeup products are unreliable. So what they say is their SPF or sun protection is not necessarily um, accurate. And the second thing is that we just don't apply them in the volumes we need to get an adequate uh, protection. If you put the same amount of foundation on as your sunscreen, um, then, you know, it generally will look pretty terrible. So, um, and then your SPF is never going to be as high anyway because it's unlikely to be what it's stated. So you're always better off putting both on if you can and making sure that the the sunscreen you use is a um, high protection and TGA approved one. On a similar note, and I think you did actually cover this earlier, a listener has asked, can I mix my sunscreen with my moisturiser and will it stay effective? Yeah, so again, it's just a problem um, with not knowing enough and uh, not knowing then what your SPF coverage is. If you are going to mix your SPF with anything, you are going to dilute it. So first of all, it's not going to be as effective. And secondly, you just don't know whether it affects the absorption, um, where it will sit, how it will change the SPF coverage that you're getting. So my recommendation is put the moisturiser on first or find an SPF product that's hydrating in itself. And there are plenty of really good ones out there. And many people find if they get the right sunscreen, it um, covers both bases, particularly on the face. And then you only need SPF and you'll actually use a little bit more of it. If you haven't used moisturizer already, uh, you tend to use a bit more sunscreen and that will give you a much better protection and be better for you all day long. A heavier subject, but something that we absolutely need to cover is skin cancer. We know that at its worst, 
the sun can cause cancer, something that we have touched on previously, but it's essential to reiterate. What is a melanoma and what role does the sun play in its development? Good question. We we all need to remember about um, skin cancer in Australia because we are world leaders, unfortunately. Melanoma is one type of skin cancer. It's actually the less common type, but the more um, deadly type. And um, that's why we worry about it so much. And melanoma is basically a cancer of the melanocyte. And the melanocyte is the cell that sits in the top layer of our skin and gives us a tan. So the job of the melanocyte is to actually rapidly produce some pigmentation called melanin uh, when it's exposed to UV light. And that melanin then gets taken up by all the other skin cells to act as a shade. So it's like a shade cloth over the um, dividing layer of cells, which is really important to, to prevent further UV damage. And the melanocyte um, is also responsible for our skin colour. So someone who's very fair will have fewer melanocytes than someone with a darker skin tone or, or a um, black skin. So the melanocytes do a great job at protecting the skin, but they are also um, prone to being damaged by the sun themselves. And we know that painful sunburns as a child is one of the greatest risk factors for melanoma later in life. And so the DNA damage can be done many, many years before that cell actually becomes cancerous. And I frequently see um, people who say, but I haven't, you know, I never go out in the sun anymore. And they can't understand how they got their skin cancer later in life. But the damage was actually done as a child or as a teen. And then you have this low grade DNA damage. The body basically keeps it in check make sure that that cell doesn't, you know, progress to a cancerous one with another mutation. But as we age or over time, a cell can escape the system. And as soon as it starts dividing and escapes the checking mechanisms, uh, it becomes a cancer or a skin cancer. So melanoma has a risk of spreading through the body. And that's why we worry about it uh, so much. You mentioned that we are the world leaders in skin cancer, which is not the greatest of titles, but just so that people are aware that no one is immune to this, how common is skin cancer in Australia? Um, good question. We we don't know exactly how, how common all skin cancers are because not every skin cancer is registered and we broadly divide them up into melanomas and non-melanoma skin cancer. Melanomas are counted and... Over the last 30 years or so, our rate of melanoma has actually doubled. It's approximately uh, 50 cases per 100,000 a year. And I think roughly 2,000 people a year die from melanoma in Australia. Um, on the other hand, non-melanoma skin cancer, which comes from any other skin cell that we have, it accounts for many, many, many more times the rate of melanoma, probably up to 100 times as many. But there's only a fraction of them that are actually um, fatal or that actually spread. So even though they're far more common, we know, they are less likely to cause um, severe harm. And um, the, the statistics seem to indicate that the rates of skin cancer are still going up as um, our population ages, but the rates in young people are definitely decreasing, which is great news. 
And so there are fewer melanomas sort of in the in the under 30s now than there were 20 years ago, but more in the elderly population who had that damage when they were younger. As far as keeping an eye on our own skin, what should we be looking out for? That's a really good question. And unfortunately, I think even though there have been lots of public campaigns about self-skin checking and getting your skin checked, people still don't know what to look for, uh, what to see their doctor about. And um, it's hard to clearly define it and cover all all variabilities, unfortunately. But we use an ABCDE um, screening tool, which helps some people. We're looking at um, asymmetry in the mole, so an uneven looking mole. We're looking at the border. So is the border changing or irregular? Uh, the colour, most melanomas have more than one colour in them. And that's, again, difficult sometimes to understand, but they often look a bit black, a little bit brown, a little bit pink. And then you've got diameter. So most melanomas are greater than six millimetres. And E is for evolution. And E is probably the most important because evolution covers anything that's changing. And by definition, cancer is something that is growing. Okay, so there is no such thing as a cancer that's not changing. That's what cancers are. And I'm always explaining to people that if something is changing, then it should be checked always because most benign skin lesions, you might wake up one day and you've got a new freckle or a new sunspot, but then it just stays and it stays the same. And they tend to look like your other spots, the benign ones. Whereas melanomas tend to look different, but they're always changing or growing. And I think that's the main message from me is to, to get something checked if you don't feel right about it or it's, it's definitely changed. How often should we be visiting a professional for a skin cancer check? Yeah, another question that many people don't know the answer to and... Um, we really need to get that message out that the best solution is to at least get one check done. And once you've had one check done, then if you've seen a professional, they will be able to guide you as to how often you should be getting your skin checked. And so I'd like everyone in their 20s at least to get a skin check and then get professional guidance about their risk factors. The main risk factors we look at are family history, um, having lots and lots of moles, as I said, uh, sunburns as a child and long-term sun exposure as well. So they all contribute to your individual risk. But having a professional check your skin, educate you about what to look for, what to worry about, what not to worry about, and then also give advice about how often they think you should get checked is probably the, the best idea for each individual. It really varies. Some people should be being checked once a year, twice a year, and others, um, if they're very low risk and young, you would say you can watch your own skin. And um, so long as you're, you're aware of these things you should come back with, then um, that's fine. If you've got almost no spots and you've had very little damage, most people are safe not to have a regular skin check with a dermatologist. For anyone who perhaps hasn't had a skin check before and might be a little bit nervous to go, what can they expect? What's involved? Yeah, good question. Don't be scared. Um, <laughs> most of us are pretty friendly. We, um, What we'll generally do is really check your body top to toe. That's the goal. 
check all the bits of skin that you might not be able to see and give you advice about what to look for and where you might need to look and which spots you might need to keep an eye on. So when I do a skin check, I'll be looking uh, right through the hair, looking at the scalp, looking behind the ears, looking between the toes, looking in the creases. Um, most of the time what we do is strip down to underwear so bra and undies will stay on and then work around those areas to make sure we've checked all areas that have had sun exposure and double check whether there are any other spots on your body that might be still covered up uh, that you want to have checked. And then it's really about that education and making sure you know what to look for and what to keep an eye on. And all-encompassing note to kind of wrap on, wrap up on, sorry, why do we need to wear broad spectrum sunscreen every single day and how do we convince those who think for whatever reason that they don't have to? Excellent point to end on. And, um, you know, we both agree that sunscreen every day is preferable and you can sometimes, well, sometimes we need to look at it from the individual's point of view though. If they have risk factors for skin cancer, you know, they need to understand that, even a little bit, a little bit of sun on any day, even if it's cloudy, even if they're not getting sunburn, even if they can't even feel the sun, even if they think they're only outdoors for five minutes getting in and out of their car, if they've already got damage on their skin or they have personal risk for skin cancer, then every little bit adds up. And so if you can put brakes on that and protect uh, from any point moving forward, we know that that reduces your risk of skin cancer in the future. If you are worried about photoaging, uh, reduced collagen, wrinkles, pigmentation, any of the problems we see from the sun, then uh, it's a no-brainer. We have to protect every single day. We know that aging process uh, is extremely fast, accelerated in Australia due to even incidental sun exposure. And we only have to generally look at our, um, you know, abdomens to see the difference between the sun, the, the area of our skin that has had exposure throughout our life and an area that's been protected most of the time. And there aren't many uh, women past about 25 that, that um, can't see a difference in the skin on their face just due to that day in, day out, a little bit of sun. So the sooner you start the better off you'll be down the track and it's much better to prevent and much easier to prevent than it is to treat um, the premature ageing that we see from the sun down the track. That was dermatologist Dr Cara McDonald, who you can reach via completeskinspecialists.com.au. You can discover more about La Roche-Posay, including my newest love, the recently reformulated Amphelios Invisible Fluid Sunscreen, at laroche-posay.com.au or on Instagram at laroche-posay-a-u-n-z. The interview, you can visit glowjournal.com and for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at gemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you like this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts, you've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.